Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Post Post Podcast, where I talk to creative minds about their inspiring creative journeys. I'm your host, David Gidali, and this is episode 15, and I'm very excited about this episode because my guest today is Tyson Ibel, who is a visual effects artist. Uh, he lives in Toronto and works full-time remotely for Make in uh, Minneapolis, and he's about to release a uh, particle simulation plugin for 3D Studio Max called TyFlow. Uh, those of you who work with 3D Max must know uh, Particle Flow, which is their uh, main uh, particle simulation software. And this is essentially his attempt at rewriting and recreating it and, and bringing it up to speed to modernizing it and making it actually useful nowadays. Um, and from all his tests that he showcases online, it seems very promising. Uh, a lot of people in the industry are very excited and very uh, eager to to get their hands on it and see what it can do. Um but the reason I wanted to talk to Tyson Ibel for a long time is uh, because of uh, because of the impression that he made on me very early on in my career as a visual effects artist. And uh, I'm talking about early 2000s, back in a day when the community was very small. Everybody was pretty much uh, talking to get to each other on the same uh, online forum on uh, a website called CG Talk. Um, those of you who have been in this uh, field for a while must know CG Talk and must remember the time when CG Talk was like the hub of all CG creators. Um, and these were exciting times because uh, the moderators of uh, CG Talk had uh, had some really cool ideas and really in you know incredibly creative ways of of mobilizing the industry and mobilizing artists and encouraging um, original creations. Back then, they had something called challenges. I think it was once a month, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they would host them. They would come up with these very generic. Uh, idea like very generic concepts uh subject matters uh for instance I, I remember taking part in one called machine flesh which was basically do whatever you want uh, it, with within that kind of uh, theme and uh artists uh are all around the world uh from all different uh uh, levels have participated and, and submitted their work. And I remember working really hard on it and getting feedback from a lot of very experienced uh, and uh, professional visual effects uh, veterans. And it was really exciting because I was just starting up and getting that kind of interaction, getting people to comment on, on the development. That was a very exciting time and, and a great way to improve. And Tyson back in that those days was kind of a, a little disruptor uh he came in he was uh, younger than probably most people who took part in those uh in those challenges and would um just blow everybody's everyone's mind away um and for people who are familiar with uh, 3d graphics and uh, also those who are not it's not a secret uh, that this is a very complicated field uh, there's a lot of different disciplines involved like to create a, an animated like piece no matter what it is you have to know several things you have to be able to model uh model your character and then to rig the characters and then know how to animate them and and um and deal with colors and materials and and cameras and and compositing and there's a lot of things that go into it things that time people take a long time to to learn individually not to mention being able to kind of master all of them and tyson was this young kid who came out of nowhere who was basically good at everything uh, and seemed to be doing those things not only at the highest level that you can imagine but also super fast as if uh, as if they don't sleep essentially 
And so for, you know, ever since I started seeing his work, I was very intrigued and, and uh, sometimes even uh, intimidated by this kind of amazing output that he's able to, uh, to showcase and uh, to churn out. Um, and I was always very curious and, and mystified by how he does it and what he's going to do next. And, you know, with years that came by and passed, I was kind of more, even more growing curious, what is he going to do now? Where is he going to take his talents and his uh, expertise and how is he going to capitalize on them? And what are you going to see from him? So, you know, I was suspecting maybe he's going to become uh, a director and take, you know, take the route that uh, Wes Ball did, for instance, uh, who was also on this podcast a few episodes back. Uh, and, or maybe he was going to get snatched by one of the big uh, CG studios and become, you know, a supervisor or something like that. Um but then a few years later, he suddenly showed up with a bunch of uh, mobile games that he designed and uh, developed, and uh, they were really, really cool, and um, and it was kind of uh, interesting. So, you know, looking a bit further into it, I found out he works at this company called Make in Minneapolis um, full-time, and he spends the rest of his time kind of working on his own personal projects, like those mobile games. Later, he, he released some of those games that were very successful, they still are. And uh, now he's working on this uh, particle simulation software, which also kind of came out of nowhere, at least for, for me, you know, a, a sideline observer. Uh, but it's all very exciting and very inspiring. And I'm just so glad that he was game to, to take part in this podcast and uh, take some time off from his uh, very busy schedule and uh, talk to me and kind of uh, answer my questions. And I had a lot of questions. I'm a little bit of a fanboy in this case. And... Um, yeah, just had a blast. Uh, very grateful. And I hope you guys will appreciate his um, his time. Great, great inspiration. And um, that's it. Without further ado, I give you episode 15 with Tyson Ibel of the Post Post Podcast. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being on. Uh, it's a uh, it's an honor. Uh, I've been waiting for this moment for many many years. <laughs> I've been following your uh, your amazing uh, creation over the years. And uh, well, you, men- you mentioned the steampunk challenge. It's hard to believe that was like uh, fifteen years ago, or like twelve years oh ago, God. or something. Yeah, time just flies by. It's crazy, isn't it? And yeah. I remember that. I mean, I remember. I also remember like a short film might have been on your website at some point. Which was like a live action with a T Rex, like a small T Rex. <laughs> yeah, I did that at the end of uh, high school uh, with my best friend Sean. We uh, entered a local film uh, contest, and uh, yeah, put that together. That was sort of my first foray into visual effects. That's kind of uh, remarkable for a first foray into visual effects. Like mine was like a cube or something. <laughs> well, I guess I mean I, I had I had made a couple films prior, but I mean I was still in high school. I was pretty fresh. Uh, so I definitely didn't have any r- real experience under my belt, just kind of playing around. But uh, it turned out pretty well, I think, all things considered, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say so. It was super impressive at the time. And, you know, I, I remember um, we'll probably kind of go back and forth in time. But um, I just, uh, as an anecdote, I remember looking at your things when uh, when I first got introduced to your work and realizing how young you were. And I remember working in a visual effects company, and everybody there was like, 
kind of looking with envy at, at the type of things that you seem to be doing on your own. Um, and especially given like how younger you were uh, of any anyone like in, in our studios. And I wonder, so how old are you now? Uh, right now I'm 32. Yeah. But I got so, started when I was like uh, maybe 15, I think. Yeah, I was going to say young, still younger, yeah. which makes sense. I mean, you, you, you would be, but <laughs> that's pretty crazy. Um, so let's start from now. Like, what is what do you do nowadays or how do you usually introduce yourself? Like, what's your uh, day job? Yeah, right now I work for a company called Make in uh, Minneapolis and in, in the United States. Uh, we mainly do animation and visual effects for advertising. So we do a lot of TV commercials, corporate advertising, that kind of stuff. And then... Uh, on the side, for a while, I was doing game development, but now I've kind of switched gears to uh, software development, making um, some software plugins for the uh, the animation package that I normally use, which is 3D Studio Max. So I've been working on a plugin called TieFlow for a couple of years, which is a uh, sort of an offline simulation tool for helping with various uh, visual effects related things. So yeah, that keeps I mean, we'll, me pretty we'll, busy. We'll, yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely get to that. And I mean, I... It seems like from, you know, ever since I've, I've been introduced to you, I, I've noticed that I think you've worked for, Ma- for Make like many, many years, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Start? They were my, I started, uh, I think, a year out of high school. They hired me. They saw my website, uh, brought me over. And then um, I worked on site for about a year and a half and decided in I wanted to go to, yeah, in Minneapolis. I moved to the state because I'm a Canadian. So I'm uh, right now living in Toronto. Uh, but I grew gotcha. up. Uh, I grew up near near Toronto, so I moved over to Minneapolis. Uh, worked on site for a year and a half, and then uh, because I was sort of fresh out of high school, I didn't have any post secondary. I decided that I wanted to pursue um, a degree, um, so I kind of took a leap and decided I wanted to go to New Zealand to study. And uh, when I told uh, my boss at Make um, that I wanted to make the move, he suggested that well, why don't I just keep, why don't I stay working for Make but just do it remotely. And so we kind of talked through the logistics of getting a, a beefy computer over to New Zealand and uh, figuring out how to do everything over the internet. And um, it went pretty smoothly. I mean, it was just a matter of uh, getting set up over there. And right away, I was back sort of at work at Make while I was studying and um, got through four years of school uh, while working for them and then moved back to Canada and just kept working for them. So I work for them remotely and I've done that for uh about 10, 10 years, I guess, almost. So, so That's yeah, a, so I've, I've only ever, time. yeah. And I've only ever worked for make, I've never worked for another animation studio. I'm really happy at make. That's why I've never had the, uh, never had a reason to, to leave. So. That's great. And I mean, right off the bat, you mentioned, you know, leaving and working remotely. And, uh, I mean, that takes a lot of, uh, kind of self, uh, you know, um, self-discipline and, uh, and a lot of professional kind of, and I, I bet you started pretty young at, with that. So uh, would you say you were like that in terms of, you know, being uh, self-disciplined and uh, very kind of, uh, uh, you know, organized uh, as, as, as a kid? Or is it something that you kind of picked up or had to learn during the process of uh, working remote? I've always been really self-motivated when it comes to projects that I'm interested in. I never had any trouble getting the motivation to work on something. Even when I was working at Make, I would, you know, often stay late after work just to keep working on projects. So the idea of uh, working from home was totally natural to me. And I've never had issues trying to 
maintain motivation. I, I guess it's just my personality. Um, uh, I just love doing this stuff. Right. So, uh, right. I, you know, some people I talk to, they can't imagine working from home because the temptation just to, you know, mess around or go out or do, you know, chores throughout the day or whatever would be, t- would be too hard and they wouldn't get, they would, they wouldn't get anything done, but I've never really had that issue. It's just been, so it's, it's always been uh, pretty natural for me to work hard. Gotcha. So that temptation to go out or doing th- something like that doesn't really kind of apply. No, to not you, really. Like, if anything, I, if, if I have the option, it's like, oh, I want to stay in and work on this project some more or something. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, I'm not, uh, I have never had that issue now. But yeah, it's definitely not for everyone. It's definitely some people um, really have a hard time staying motivated when they when they're working from home. So I, I guess I'm lucky in that sense. Right, and I think uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I remember at some point uh, you were talking about one of the short films that you kind of uh, posted up uh, in I guess CG Talk or something. I remember you did this thing with uh, you took a scene from uh, uh, Jerry Seinfeld from, from Seinfeld essentially oh, yes, and, yes. Uh, and animated that and into with these like kind of cartoony characters and stuff. I thought it was remarkable. Uh, I think it was this one that you, someone asked you how long it took and you, and you kind of put up this impossible time frame that I was like, nah, that that's impossible that someone would do this, you know, so quickly. Uh, it might've been that or the one with the, with the hand, like the, the hand that's like, uh, running around, you could create oh, this gosh, uh, yeah. hand puppet. Um, or, I mean, you've, you've made, okay, let's maybe walk back a bit you've made a t- you've you've had a, an incredible output in those early years i think i mean just from from the outside you know seeing how often you you would post something up and and every single thing that you posted had this something you know ha- had something unique about it and something incredibly i would say time consuming from my perspective mm. And it just seemed like, you know, you are five people that all, you know, call themselves Tyson Eibel. Eibel you know? like, <laughs> I did. How is I, that, you know? Yeah, I, I, I know uh, in the past, especially when I was younger, I would definitely take pride in how quickly I could get something done. Um, I think, you know, honest, being honest with you, I think that was somewhat to my own detriment. Um, <laughs> I think I developed a workflow that was focused on quickly working through difficult tasks rather than spending more time kind of fine-tuning and refining. So um, I kind of wish I could have gone back to my younger self and, you know, uh, looked at some of those projects I did and and kind of uh, convinced myself to maybe refine them a little bit more. Because now when I, you know, when I look back on them with a sort of a, uh, uh, an eye that can recognize details and problems a little a little clearer i can see a lot of mistakes i was making as i was rushing through these projects but i think um i was also uh i really enjoyed the kind of feedback loop you'd get on a on a site like cg talk where you could post something and you get feedback right away from people and it was kind of like maintaining a um i i guess i i guess i liked kind of having my work in the spotlight because I know uh, CG Talk would often feature my little projects and that would get a lot of attention and then I would that would motivate me to work on the next one really quickly and pump the next one out. So I guess I was kind of a sucker for that that attention craving feedback loop or whatever. Whereas now in retrospect, maybe my skills would have been sort of honed a little better if I had taken things a bit slowly, maybe learned some uh, different workflows and what I was using. Cause I know, for example, with, um, with animating characters, I 
I was self-taught on this, so I never really was taught the right way of doing like, you know, a blocking pass and then refining over and over again. I would just animate straight ahead. And that that helped with the speed that I could churn out a project, right? Because I wasn't doing 10 passes on an animation. I was like doing one pass and maybe a refinement or something. But it that kind of adopting that workflow really, um, I guess when it comes to things like more complicated acting animation stuff like that, where you really need to block it out, you really need to think through it in a more slow methodical manner. I I really kind of handicapped myself because doing uh, the proper process then seems so counterintuitive to me that I just, you know, my skills as an animator kind of stagnated over time. Whereas other people that took the proper approach uh, definitely got to a, a much higher level of quality than I did over time, if that makes sense. So I guess if I was to, if I would, you know, recommend uh, anything to new animators or something out there, I would say, you know, as tempting as it is to rush through and do a lot of different projects, you know, take it slower, learn the proper ways of doing things, and then you won't, you know, make mistakes in the long run. Okay, I think that's uh, the end of our podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> a little bit. Uh, <laughs> You've jumped right into uh, <laughs> into advice, but I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, this this uh, kind of the idea of, of rushing through th- things in a way. I see the detrimental kind of aspects of it, but in mm-hmm. the same at the same time, I think you. It also was an opportunity to explore many different kinds of tools and to really. Uh, just try out things. I, I just re- realized, I just remembered that you had this gallery in your website that was like uh, uh, mood boards, I mm, guess, that you've yeah, created very yeah. early on. And, um, you know, I was just kind of like, there was something about your work that always kept, uh, you know, there was something that felt that it was all part of your learning experience. And every project that you've made, you've kind of expanded your uh, your skill set or your interest and kind of, you know, it was just... And as incredible as your work always has been, you know, when, when just seeing from, from a third-person uh, point of view, uh, it always also felt like you still have this kind of hunger for, for new experiences, for new kind of uh, um, knowledge that you still didn't possess. Like every, every project you did felt, and also I think in the way you were talking about it as you were kind of uh, posting it online and getting those feedback loops, it was always it always seemed like you've learned something through every project. So I don't think it's such a bad thing to, that, that you've got to do so many things. And I think also like, I'm going to talk soon about your decision to kind of uh, start creating all these side projects that took Mm -hmm. you away from animation. Um, Because it's kind of funny that um, the things you put up online, we, we see you do or in your website are always these personal projects or side projects. And a lot of the stuff that I'm sure you're working on on a daily basis for make are not really um, on the forefront of your online kind of uh, presence. Right. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. Early on in my time at make, I was always excited to post our projects online, but I think as we developed uh I guess I wouldn't even know what was essentially the catalyst for sort of stopping doing that. I think it was just more of the projects had tighter guidelines around the way we could sort of post the IP or whatever. And so it went from like, oh, I've just completed a project. I want to post that online to being like, well, you can't really post it online until it's aired and we've got clearance and that's months later when I've already kind of 
moved on or improved or like the projects, uh, depending on what the project was, maybe it wasn't aligned with sort of my, my style for posting online. So over time, I just, I kind of, yeah, I fell off the, and I think, you know what, there was also, uh, just online in terms of the evolution of social media and stuff like that, there was kind of a shift there that I fell off the wagon. I didn't really move to like posting on Facebook and stuff like that when it started to get first popular. So I think it was a combination of sort of CG talk, which was my main place to post Um, CG talk kind of started to lose traction as more social media esque places kind of took ground like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And I had these constraints with projects I would do at work where I couldn't post them right away or I couldn't post them all in some cases. And so, yeah, I think um, that's where my focus kind of shifted towards my hobby projects rather than constantly posting what my latest work project was. Right. Um, And as for uh, the the variety of projects that I would do, yeah, I've always had like a generalist um, sort of heart. Like I've never felt like I really want to focus on one specific area of the creation process like animating characters or something just i just i just want to animate character like i never felt that way i always had a very short attention span so you know one day i'd be making some kind of explosion effect and the next day i'd be doing some kind of like uh, lip sync character animation the day after that i'd be trying to animate some animal robot thing, you know what i mean so yeah and it would be like you know i'd try to get over some rigging hurdle and that would you know i'd i'd I do that for a while and then I'd move to like, you know, rendering and then sort of all, all aspects of the, the animation process. So in that sense, I, I think I maybe my short attention span and my desire to quickly move through projects kind of helped me become a better generalist. But it definitely didn't help me become like a master of one particular area of the process. So, um, I mean, uh, sorry to ask so bluntly, but did you yeah, have sure. any social life in your early 20s? Yeah, I mean, I uh, maybe not as much as some people. I mean, there's, a, there's only there's only so much of a social life you can have when you're working like full time and going to school and making short films on the side, right? But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I I was fairly social. I don't think I've ever been a super introvert or anything. But I am more. I'm definitely more introverted than a lot of people. Like, I have no problem hunkering down on a computer for like 16 hours a day for a lot of days, just working constantly, right? Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, so, I managed to get so, married in, the, in there too. I'm, I'm married, so I'm not. Oh wow! I'm not a total uh, outcast. Congrats. Yeah, I have. A, I, That's I have what a wife I was going to ask uh, you. Like, do do you still like lead a normal <laughs> normal person's life? Do you have a wife? Do you? Yeah, is everything yeah, okay? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, everything's great. Everything's great. I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, I think I've. Uh, I definitely am more introverted, and I sort of work a lot more than a lot of people would probably feel comfortable with themselves just because i love working um right but i haven't i don't think i've sacrificed any major life milestones or anything because of it so i'm very happy with where i am and i wouldn't really change anything going back yeah no i mean those are obviously jokes i mean i i'm i'm imagining that just based on (laughs) seeing the kind of the output and knowing that even what what i consider enormous like an enormous output compared to other people that I know and compared to myself, um, knowing that you also work full-time in a company. Uh, and actually, I wanted to ask you, so there, you know, this, this amazing output that you've had, I'm sure, has gotten a lot of attention towards you. So the fact that you've actually remained kind of loyal to one uh, studio through all these, throughout all these years is, is kind of remarkable. Like, were you... Did you ever have to turn down like a, a crazy offer from some ma- major Hollywood studio or anything like that? Or uh, oh yeah, I mean, I 
when I was younger, not so much anymore because I don't put my work out so much online in the same avenues. But when I was younger, there were several large studios um, that, I mean, I didn't go in for an interview or anything because I always turned them down early in the process. But they definitely said, you want to come in and, uh, you know, we'll give you a shot. But uh, I, I mean, once I once I found how convenient it was to work from home, I really... I just couldn't imagine going back to work for a studio. Like unless, you know, make uh, they have an earthquake over there or something. I, uh, I can't imagine giving up the situation that I have right now, even if it meant a higher profile project that I get to work on, you know, bigger films or something like that. That really doesn't interest me when I'd be sacrificing the whole lifestyle that I have right now. So, um, you know, I can't predict the future, but uh, as it currently stands, you know, any studio could walk up to me and make me an offer and I would happily turn it down knowing that uh, I'm very happy where I am right now. So, well, that's, uh, that's awesome to hear. I mean, I'm, I'm happy for you. I think it's a great, uh, great position to be in, in terms of like, you know, professional, you know, professional life. Um, I guess, uh, my next question, well, I guess it's worth mentioning that you're a generalist and I know just judging by the early project that I, I'm pretty sure you've done all by yourself, uh, you're kind of a one-man uh, team in a way. Uh, is, would that be accurate to say? I mean, is that kind of how working remotely works uh, in your particular instance? Um, it, really, of- it really depends on the project. Some projects, I'll, they'll just get handed off and it just makes sense for me to do the whole thing. Um, yeah. But there are, as, as our studio has grown over the years, we've definitely moved towards more of a teamwork, uh, more of a a team style atmosphere where projects get split up between people who are able to focus on what they're more um, tuned to working on. So we've got, you know, people who are dedicated animators now and comp compers and uh, model people, you know, who mostly do the modeling Um, like uh, how all large studios are set up where basically you have all these departments that are split up. Now we're not big enough yet to have separate departments, but we definitely have more of a collaborative collaborative atmosphere now than we did in the past. And I think that's just, uh, you know, once our projects got to a certain size, it was just impossible for single people to do it. So as for me, I know, um, I think I get handed off single projects to do by myself, probably maybe a little more so than my coworkers, just because it is, there is a level of inconvenience that comes with working remotely when I'm the only remote worker at the studio. So everyone right. else, you know, they just lean over to their, to the other, uh, you know, their coworker next to them and they can, you know, talk, talk shop. But here, you know, it's like, I have to arrange a Skype call and then we got to, I got to download all the assets if I'm working on some project and synchronize all that. So it's, I definitely do solo projects, I think more than others at the studio, but more and more as time has gone by or less and sorry, less and less, I should say, are my projects complete solo projects. I definitely do a lot of collaborating. And when you do collaborate, like, uh, and you mentioned where people kind of tend to utilize their, the thing, their strengths, mm-hmm. um, is there, what's your strength? I mean, I'm, I'm laughing as I'm, as I'm asking this question. Cause I mean, it seems like you could probably do any part um, of the process, but. Well, I definitely, so I think, Hmm. Maybe like particle effects or kind of just visual effects. I know like, you know, our anim- the animators in the Minneapolis side can animate circles around me. I'm definitely not the first person to go to for character animation anymore. Um, we've got really great um, technical directors, sort of uh, pipeline managers. Um, so I guess if, 
you know, if I was to imagine how my boss would consider me like my greatest skill would probably be, you know, particle effects or maybe simulations or whatever, which I guess makes sense considering I've written the tools that we now use. So, um, so yeah, but uh, definitely it used, you know, it used to, character animation used to be my forte where I thought that was where I would really always excel at, but I've definitely lost a lot of the knack for it over the years just because I haven't done it as much. So Hmm. moving definitely moving towards uh sort of simulations and stuff like that but when you say you lost a knack i mean is it just a a, fa a, a factor of you have not having it done it like re recently so yeah i mean i like the last time i did like a full bipedal character animation honestly i can't even remember um maybe like a couple of years ago or something right like it's, it's been a while so you know you just it's not like like i can look at character animation and i can critique it i think and i can look at a uh, you know, another person's work or even my own work and see where it could be improved or whatever. So it's not like I've lost the eye for it, but I've definitely lost the, uh, I don't know, it takes a certain amount of like uh, a special type of focus to be able to sit down and, and do it in an efficient manner. And because I haven't been practicing it, I've been doing it often. I, I would, I think I would be pretty slow to animate these days and I would feel kind of like a fish out of water because I haven't done it so much. But yeah, I mean, to your point, I was kind of like, I guess the question I was asking is like, have you actually um, animated a character or the last, or actually, have you actually felt like that kind of rustiness when you last animated a character? Or is it just kind of an assumption that because it's been so long, you probably have lost an act? Um, I've, I've felt it, especially because over the years, character rigs uh, have gotten more complicated and the expectations for the level of like fidelity in a rig has gotten a lot more complicated. And so, yeah. I, yeah, I've kind of, it's, you know, it's just like when I, when I'm given a rig to animate, it's just like a general, like, how do I describe the feeling? It's just like, I'm so over it. I just don't <laughs> care anymore about character animation. I mean, I'll do it if I have to, but I don't get excited about it. I just feel frustrated because it takes a long time to do good quality character animation. And there's so many aspects of it that are just sort of uninteresting to me, you know, like. Right. On the process. Uh, I mean, it's like. Yeah. It's like you already kind of know what it's going to look like in the end. Exactly. And so why why have to kind of waste all your time getting So it's like there? a very, yeah, it's a very tedious process to get a result that you can like mentally anticipate. Like there's no excitement. Like, oh, how's it going to look? I can't wait to kind of feel out the, the motion and see how it'll turn out. Like that's how it was when I was younger because I had so little, I, I didn't have as much experience. So yeah. every new project was like a surprise of what it would look like at the end now, right? But now... When I think about like if you you know if someone was to assign me like a thirty second character animation, I would just I'd want to <laughs> pull my brains out or something. <laughs> That's yeah, a little it's too funny. Harsh. It? <laughs> so so, so you're not the kind of guy that gets uh, satisfaction by merely having gone through a, a a very hard kind of process of of work and getting to the you know reaching the end point. That's not enough. Uh, you know I I. I do enjoy like the thrill of, so of problem solving, but I like it in smaller doses. And I think that's why I've uh, moved to software development hmm. um, as my sort of main hobby, uh, the, the type of thing I enjoy doing on my own, because it's like every, pro every problem I solve when I'm writing software is um, usually for a lot of it is a much smaller, more contained little problem. And the, um, the rewards are greater because there's mystery involved, you know, like there's undefined, I mean, pardon the pun, there's undefined variables. Like there's parts of algorithms that, you know, there might not even be an optimal solution that anyone's ever come up with. So when you come up with that or you solve a problem like that, it feels really rewarding. Whereas like, 
you know, when you consider the number of animators that are working worldwide, I mean, please, I, I don't mean to disrespect any animators who love animating. I mean, I used to, and I totally understand the feeling, but when I just think of like the sheer number of people animating characters, essentially doing very similar actions, very similar, um, acting in very similar circumstances, the idea of like joining that group and animating myself, like, you know, the idea of uh, working for a big studio, animating characters in a motion picture or something like that. It just seems like, I don't know, it, it feels like a very, um, it just doesn't seem like the rewards match the amount of work that go into it. But that's totally right. just my, that's my own view. I definitely don't want to degrade any of the amazing animators out there doing the incredible work because of course, um, everyone has their own preferences, right? So someone might just love just working through the passes to get a beautiful performance out of a character, right? I just, right. I guess over time I've just evolved, I, you know, the trajectory of my interest has just changed. So that just doesn't, doesn't really do it for me anymore, but I definitely can respect people who, who uh, haven't lost that. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of feel like, um, uh, people who are listening to this podcast should definitely kind of see your, the whole extent of your work, you know, from from your early animation tests that are, were remarkable. I remember that B that had a what was it like a rocket engine in in, in its <laughs> like butt or something like that. That was the first thing I ever did for Make, yeah, the first project. Oh, I didn't know it was for Make. It was just a little internal project. Just I had oh. literally just been hired, and we were like, oh, let's do something cool for the for the reel, and yeah, that was the first thing. And I remember seeing that transformer that like it's kind of starts as a I think helicopter and then it turns into a motorcycle or something. Oh yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. And uh, oh, that uh, the car crash uh, challenge I think where you created this like robot that jumps and like kind of attacks a car or something like that. It seemed like um, that that was you, right? Yes, yes, that, that was uh, for a CG shoots. talk uh, FX Wars challenge back when they used to have those. Right. So I mean, a few things that kind of I was. I was kind of curious about first it always seems like at least in those challenges you went way above and beyond what any other you know sane person that was taking part in those uh, contests kind of did like <laughs> and you know i mean like for instance that uh you created a short that actually went went on to like win festivals if i'm not mistaken right uh, uh that was um you know, I don't think I ever did the festival circuit with, uh, I know you're talking about Hemlock, right? Hemlock, yes. That that won the uh, CG Talk challenge that I entered it for, but I didn't ever do a festival run with it. Huh, okay. Um, but but uh, um, yeah, I guess, you know, I think I do, enjoy, you know, as much as I no longer enjoy animating the same way I used to, I still enjoy telling stories. And I always have, right? So whenever there would be a challenge or something that would come up, like a contest, I would always try to frame it in, how can I make this into a little narrative or a short film or something like that? Um, because I guess at that, um, putting that kind of thing out has more of a, maybe a lasting impact, you know, rather than just like an animation clip that someone might look at and go, huh, you know, that's cool. But telling a story is something that people might want to share with, with each other, or, you know, something that has a little more... Um, weight to it so i've always enjoyed taking the challenge of like creating a, a full film or something like that or short short film never made a feature but yeah i mean that's and that was actually going to be my next uh, point that was you know exactly that that all of those early tests or quote-unquote or like uh, uh challenge entries uh they all felt very like rounded and whole and kind of like they had their own style and, and, and their own kind of st story structure i remember that um a mime crossing the street 
Uh, <laughs> I like, forgot about that one actually. Yeah, yeah. A, yeah, I mean it's super funny and 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 it's like clearly like just kind of an animation test or character animation test or something. But it's got this its whole kind of its own personality, its own little you know story with beginning, middle, and end. Uh, with this mime that kind of like pretends to you know walk the street and then a, a, an invisible car hits him and it kind of flies <laughs> off. It's super funny and uh, I think there was something with a uh, with a character that's like jumping off a, a jumping board. I think. Yeah, yeah. There was a diving uh, board one. And there's the the surgeon. There's something yeah. with, with was those that were like for the, the old uh, ten second club before they second, converted yeah. it to the eleven second club. <laughs> yeah, right. I remember that. Yeah, and those are like incredibly well. Uh, not just animated, but like uh, rendered, you know, and, and lit and com- and, and composed. I just remember, like, it, it was a variety of skill sets that had to, you know, kind of that that you had to inject into those videos to make them look uh, as as well as they did. I mean, I think most of them still hold up to this day. I know you might be looking back and saying, "Oh, there's a lot of you know a lot more to do," but like from the point of view of someone who's like clearly, you know, everybody was aware that this is done for some kind of a you know little online challenge Mm. and nobody's like putting you know an incredible amount of time into that because it's all you know side projects for everyone right right uh they were still pretty remarkable and and uh above what people expected but the i guess you know uh feel free to interject or or to say what made you kind of go so far with those projects what do you think was the the motivator to like or did you even look at it as going above and beyond, or for, was it for you just a matter of like, uh, of, oh, I'll, I'll just work another half hour and, and it may, make it seem like five people worked for five days on it? <laughs> well, uh, I, you know, I've always appreciated uh, when um, projects have sort of an extra level of polish on them. So I've always tried to do that on my own work. I know for those in particular, they were for the 10 second club, which was kind of a, a uh, uh, pretty um, involved uh, contest, which is now called the 11 second club. Um, and uh, each, each, I guess the premise is each month uh, you're given a, approximately a 10 second long clip of audio from a movie or TV show, just the audio clip. And your goal is to animate uh, characters um, lip syncing to it in a situation that they're also acting out uh, to it. So um, I remember wanting to polish those just because I wanted to win. Right. But I never did win, but, uh, there was a couple that I think I got a decent score, but the problem was there was hundreds of people that would enter. Right. So you were up against a huge amount of skill. And so, um, um, yeah, I think that's why I put the extra effort into those videos when I was working on them. But for the most part, I've always tried to, I've always tried to present each animation I did as like a standalone kind of complete project rather than, like a work in progress or something. Um, I guess part of that was just uh, a desire to have like a sort of a polished portfolio at the end of the day with a sort of a variety of work that could kind of stand alone. Um, not to say that you can't have sort of work in progress or even like play last type, uh, uh, you know, videos as part of a portfolio, but I guess that's just a personal preference of mine. And because I did, because I did have a short attention span where I would want to learn all aspects, all aspects of the sort of the CG animation creation process as I, you know, get bored of one and move to the other, I guess it just made sense that when I was doing these little one-off projects, I would kind of take everything I'd learned and try to apply it rather than just part of, you know, part of something. 
Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, I think. Uh, and it's clearly kind of evident in, in the work that you've made over the years. Um, I guess the desire to tell stories the way you, you kind of do with each of those, uh, of those shorts, where do you think it came from? Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. I'm trying to think back. You know, back in high school, the very first time I ever entered a short or I ever really completed a project was uh, a short film I made in 10th grade, I believe. And honestly, that's so long ago, I can't even remember what motivated me to do it. I don't even know how I heard about it. I think what had happened was I was one of the couple people in my school who had discovered... Um, animation because there was a there was a lot of very rudimentary animation software uh back then i think the program i started on was called actually i think the first program i ever did any kind of 3d anything with was like corel draws like they oh, had this yeah. old, this 3d animation package that was like part of their corel draw uh uh suite which was in like 2001 or something like way back so i think you know i was I, I've naturally always enjoyed computers, even since I was much, much younger than that. I had like an old Tandy computer, which I think were only sold in Canada. I'm not sure, but it's like a really old computer that was, I guess, equivalent of maybe like a 386 or something. Right. And um, so I was always kind of tinkering and I've always enjoyed doing artwork. And so then I discovered 3D animation and I entered that contest when I was 14. I think I was 14 and I won it. It was like a provincial animation contest. And I think winning that was like lit a fire under me where I was like, wow, this is something that I'm good at that I enjoy doing. And it was just like a snowball effect where then I was motivated to enter the next year with a new short film. And then the idea of like making short films kind of entered my mind as something that I want to keep doing. And that's probably what started me there. And, and you wouldn't attribute it to like watching films as a kid or anything like that. I'm, I'm wondering also. Um, oh yeah. Like, I guess that's a good point too. I remember when toy story first came out, I loved that. I watched, uh, you know, I was in love with star Wars as a kid and watching other films as well. So I've always had film as part of like my mental vocabulary, but I mean, there's lots of people out there who are film buffs that have never thought about even making a film or doing anything like that. So I don't know if I would attribute that directly to my desire. I think maybe it's just like a, I think it's kind of like a, an overall desire just to kind of tinker, mm -hmm. like just to take something and just kind of tinker with it for a bit. And then you and then the output is something you've created. Right. And computers have made that super easy because there's there's no like uh, real labor involved with making something on a computer. I mean, obviously, there's like the mental labor of sitting there and working on it. But like I'm not I don't have to like hammer things. I don't have to saw things, carry things around. I just sit on a computer some time passes and then I've made something. Right. Yeah. So I think that has always given me a lot of sort of personal fulfillment and that has motivated me a lot. Um, and yeah, just the development of software over the years has made it so easy and the barrier of entry is so low to, um, just sit down for a little bit of time and then come up with something original and cool that people like to see. And so that's probably, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, actually a good kind of segue to, to talking about like your, your, sort of transition, I guess, which is kind of funny to say transition, given you've been working at the same company for 10 years now, or maybe even more. <laughs> yeah, uh, but at some point, you um, you forayed into creating uh, like web, I guess, mobile apps, right? Or games. You did like Jungle Moose. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, what? Bean, Bean Boy? Boy and the Quest and, Keeper. Yeah, I've got three right. apps out that I made uh, about, and, I guess, almost three years ago now. I don't know about the Quest Keeper. Is that the Zoombox one or is it some... Uh, no, Zombox is my Zombox. forever project at this point. 
<laughs> yeah, I started on that like 10 years ago. <laughs> it's still not out. But uh, the Quest Keeper was uh, another short game I, I made uh, uh, while I was taking a break from Zombox that I released about three years ago now. But um, oh. yeah, I've sort of been thinking recently, like, why have I... Why do I enjoy software development? Because I kind of did transition. Like when I was younger, when I was starting out in this industry, uh, I just craved animating and like making videos and stuff like that. But now the passion is really with writing code for some reason, which is kind of a big shift when you think like, I think a lot of people maybe consider sort of um, inherent artists as a totally different category of personality than someone who's like really into math and and coding and stuff like that. Like there's maybe not so much overlap between the two. Um, but I think for me, coding has, I guess, well, because, because the coding I do is related to my art. Like, uh, you know, when I make a game, it involves 3d animation and, and modeling and stuff like that. When I make my simulation software, it's all part of like making visual effects and stuff. So it's like a way for me to have an art. It's a way for me to create artwork that doesn't involve, um, super mundane repetitive processes that I began to dislike in like the character animation process. Hmm. Um, so like, for example, the simulation software that I've been making the past couple of years, what fascinates me about simulations and procedural generation and stuff like that is that you can take some very simple inputs and get incredibly complicated output. Right. Yeah. Whereas that's almost like the opposite of the animation process where you take very complicated, difficult inputs right? You're working for a long amount of time and you get a simple right. output. It's like, Oh, a cute little animation of a character doing something or a character, you know, and, you know, having a five second performance or something that you just worked on for two weeks, right. That you right. finally finished with. So it's almost like, it's almost like the complete opposite of what I was getting sick of. It's like, you know, simple inputs create unfathom unfathomably complex outputs. Like, I mean, uh, when you're dealing with high res offline, simulations i mean just look at any feature film right where you've got like cities breaking apart and planets exploding and all that i mean there's billions of elements involved right but the artists are just setting some rules they're setting simple rules and letting the computer do everything so i guess that is where i've my mentally i've i find a lot more fulfillment in that kind of a game sort of gamifying that idea where it's like what kind of rules can i set up to create a really cool complex output um that i really enjoy now and it seems like it applies both to to mobile games and to the uh, particle simulation software that you're working. Yeah, on. yeah. Mobile games um, definitely take a lot of work, um, but I think I think the reason I enjoyed doing mobile games, I've I've uh, taken a break from doing them for a while, but it's kind of it's it's definitely a similar vein to what I just described, where. Uh, sure, they take a lot of time to make. Like, I think uh, the longest one, I mean, obviously Zombox hasn't been released then. That's been ongoing for like eight or 10 years or whatever. We won't count that. But the longest game that I released was Jungle Moose, which was my first release, which I think I worked on for like maybe six or eight months or so. So it's still a lot of, it's still a lot of work, but people play them for years, right? And you've got yeah. hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of players. And so um, just thinking about all the possibilities that they're generating as they play through your game, like all the different game states and and outcomes that they're working through. I mean, right. that's vastly outnumbers any amount of actual work I put into programming the game. So I think it still matches that that sort of philosophy that I outlined a minute ago and uh, definitely fits in with... And and again, games are all about simulation as well, whether you're simulating um, you know, physics for the uh, in, you know, environment interactions or even just like player controls, simulating like um, 
how a character would walk through an environment, stuff like that, you know, light. Um, it has a lot of optimization problems you have to solve because a lot of the hardware you're trying to um, run your game on is slow or it's outdated or maybe you're just trying to do something very complicated that a lot of, you know, because I target apps um, and phones, a lot of devices can't handle it. So there's a lot of sort of interesting optimization problems you have to work through. So it's, it's definitely a lot of like... Um, uh, definitely a lot of like sh- problem solving, um, interesting problems that maybe haven't been sort of solved yet, which are always interesting to work through and stuff like that. So definitely, um, yeah. And uh, Jungle Moose, uh, just to kind of, uh, as a side note, uh, I remember part of the, I guess, complicated simulation there is all the blood that comes out of the moose <laughs> when, when it gets eaten by uh, a crazy kind of school of piranhas, right? Yeah. Yeah, I def I, I tried to make it more of an, a little bit of an edgier game. I was inspired by uh, Flappy Bird to yeah. make that one. It's not it has no similar no similarities to Flappy Bird, but for the longest time, Flappy Bird came out and it was like this explosive hit that was making insane amounts of money for the developer and had hundreds of millions of players. Right, and um, I was just racking my brain like, how can I make a game that's simple and very challenging and sort of in the same in the same like. Uh, maybe design philosophy is flappy right. bird, but it has no sim- similarities to it. Like aesthetically, was and I the, had a dream. I had a dream one night about a hippo wearing a hippo with antlers or something. So it was some weird <laughs> dream. And I was like, what if I like, you know, make him swim through water and I have piranhas attacking him. I think that was actually the dream. He was being attacked, attacked by piranhas or something. Wow. And, um, yeah, it was really inspired by a dream, but yeah, the, um, uh, there's a there was a lot of challenging simulation related tasks because you had I'd never really programmed the type of AI that was in Jungle Moose before where I had like all these independent actors which were the little piranhas that had to yeah. like latch onto the main character which is this like hippo swimming through the water and also like deform its body because as the as the piranhas latch onto it um, you know they kind of tug at his skin and like rip chunks of his flesh off as he's swimming through the water like piranhas would. Um, so I remember back, I mean, um, Unity was fairly robust at that point. It wasn't super fresh. It had been around for a long time, but there wasn't a lot of easy ways to do like uh, vertex deformations on a on a skinned character mesh at the time. So I kind of had to come up with some interesting like vertex shaders to handle all that. And um, that was a that was a fun challenge to to work around. So how do you approach a challenge like this? Do you Google it? Or is there a different? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a matter of like digging up all the existing resources out there because, I mean, uh, Google has everything. I mean, Stack Overflow has pretty much everything. You know, you you figure out the right terms and you can come up with, um, unless you're, you know, unless it's something super cutting edge that's purely like in research and development at the moment, all the answers are out there. It's just a matter of like uh, finding them. Which can, you know, it's kind of an art form of itself, like finding uh, the right answers in the mess of horrible, terrible <laughs> non-answers out there, yeah. if you know what I mean? So um, it's kind of, it's a lot of rabbit trails or rabbit holes, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of great, really great online resources out there. There's really no excuse for, um, I guess, like when you think, I mean, okay, I, I should take a step back. Going to, I was about to say, there's no excuse for having to go to school for these types of things, but actually school has a very uh, important purpose in the way that oftentimes, even if, even if the resources that are being taught are available online, sometimes just the teaching method is something that people need to pick, pick up um, the information. Not everyone is a sort of a self uh, kind of taught learner. Um, Some people benefit 
greatly from sort of being shown by a mentor. But um, yeah, I, I definitely, uh, that that's not my kind of learning style. So I definitely benefit a lot from, you know, reading documentation and hunting through Stack Overflow and stuff like that. So would you say the uh, part of the motivation to do uh, something like um, Jungle Moose was, was to try to get rich quick or... Was it kind of, how big was that a motivator, do you think? Um, you know, obviously the appeal of making a simple app that makes a ton of money is is huge. I mean, that is, um, you know, that's definitely part of it. I think Jungle Moose, I mean, it was it was difficult because I, I kind of thought it would be edgy enough that it would take off. And it sort of did in a sense um, because it was featured by Apple on the App Store. And so it... Uh, it definitely had a lot of tra- initial traction. And so the whole idea of like, you know, getting rich on apps and stuff like had an appeal and it actually kind of, um, uh, like I'm not rich off apps, but like it, it the, the ability to make money quickly off apps um, definitely was motivated me to continue making other apps. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, it's def- like the problem is you can't manufacture a viral hit, right? Like, yeah. There are so many apps out there, so many companies churning out apps that it's really a lottery. And um, so initially, you know, you hear about these breakout successes and it's really exciting, the prospect of like, you know, getting rich. But uh, it's very, very difficult to find success on the app store. So um, it's and it's hard to like, well, I I mean, yeah, it's difficult to take the risk of developing a game because the, the, the app stores, not just the app store, but even steam now, like the, the kind of environment in the landscape has changed so much over the past few years that there are new barriers that weren't existing before. And, um, I think it's, I mean, if you have a good app and the kind of app that people want and doesn't exist, you probably won't have money. You probably won't have a problem making good money on the app store, but it definitely was kind of a reality check to put some apps out there and realize that it's not quite as easy as, you know, you might first assume. Yeah. And, and you say, you mentioned that the jungle moose was, uh, featured on the <clears throat> Apple kind of, uh, top apps list. Um, was that something that you kind of, you, you feel like you've contributed to or, um, uh, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> excuse me. <Sorry. clears throat> all three of my apps were featured um, when they were released. And I attribute that initial uh, success or that initial, um, what's the word, exposure to putting uh, sort of teaser images for them on a site called Touch Arcade. They had a forum uh, dedicated to uh, apps under development uh, especially for iOS was the most popular sub forum. And so every app that I would come out with, I would post on those forums and there are app store curators who work for Apple that browse uh, those types of busier development forums, looking for the latest and the greatest to promote, to aid if, you know, if the developer needs any help and stuff like that. So I think I, I kind of put the app out there. I put some screenshots, some animated GIFs um, showing the gameplay. Some people, you know, were, uh, the game's pretty edgy, you know, like you don't see too many games where like uh, your main character is being torn apart limb yeah. from limb. Right. So I, I think it kind of got a little bit of interest on the, on the edginess and then it, it caught a, an app store curator's eye. And then from there they, uh, they uh, pushed it to a feature when it was released. So interesting. Um, 
I, I I thought I mean I saw a few uh, a few a few reviews I think on uh, on the app store or something like that. And some people were put off by the by the gore of it. They were like, Oh, oh yeah, it's a cute- it uh, it totally backfired on me. I think you know I think the problem was it was it was purely market like I purely marketed it. When I say marketed, I mean just like the screenshots I put on the app store. I didn't actually do any right. marketing, but it was marketed as like a cute game, right? And the thing the pro- the a greater problem was I couldn't put any blood or violence on my app store screenshots like it was it was not allowed the game <laughs> itself could have blood and violence but the screenshots couldn't so here was this featured game featuring like a cute character oh the screenshots look kind of cute right like there's this you know they're swimming and there's some fish and then you load up the game and within like the first 10, 10 seconds of playing your character is literally being dismembered by, <laughs> by fish right so and it's like you know i've uh, for anyone who hasn't played it played it or seen it that might be listening um is there's like blood and chunks of flesh ripped off and like you see like sinew torn away as the fish are like biting at you but it's all like a cute cartoony aesthetic right so i had a right. lot of people like rating it terribly because you know just angry parents saying like oh my kid downloaded this and it's a <laughs> oh horrible game so so i kind of learned my lesson and i haven't made such a violent game since then my other games are much cuter yeah, Bean Boy uh, was, was really cute. Yeah, that that Bean Boy was my apology for Jungle Moose, and it actually <laughs> it's, it it did way better than Jungle Moose. So I guess it was a successful apology. But um, yeah, I, after the backlash to Jungle Moose, I like <laughs> hurried to make like a cute game where characters weren't brutally killed. And <laughs> but Jungle Moose wasn't the first thing you did that was uh, pretty brutal <clears throat> and and uh, gory. I mean, you did this uh, animation with with a mouse, right? Who gets uh, trapped? And- yeah, yeah, yeah. That was before I did any game development at all. I've always had like a, you know, I think there's a, I've always felt there's a void in. Uh, the animation industry for like more adult oriented or darker animations. I mean, now that's kind of been filled over the years, but back years ago, you know, it's like you think of animation, you think of Pixar, you think of dream dreamworks, you think of, you know, these kind of cutesy animations. So I, I was always like, well, I'm going to make kind of maybe more disturbing or darker animations. So I had a couple short films that were kind of more horror themed. I had like, you know, my little gory uh, mouse (laughs) (laughs) fake lactate ad where the mouse is like hit by a mouse trap that like, causes its body to explode essentially and um i think i think i've lost the desire to to make sort of those darker animations as i've gotten older i think maybe that void was filled by a lot of other artists and directors now that i don't feel like it exists anymore there's lots of kind of disturbing animations or spooky you know short films or whatever that are animated so i've lost that but earlier i definitely i i would definitely always lean towards that with my own work so I guess uh, I wanted to ask what who's your inspirations nowadays and and have you over the years been kind of able to reach out and connect to some of the people that you were inspired by? There was a few people that I made animations based on their work that I then connected with um, just briefly, just kind of, um, you know, um, they would shout me out or something when they saw, they saw the animation I did. So I haven't, I haven't uh, gone out of my way to connect with other sort of uh, artists, but in terms of inspiration, um, I know like when I was younger, Chris Cunningham was a big uh, influence on my own personal tastes. He's the director that did uh, the Aphex twin uh, videos with like rubber Johnny or uh, window liquor. If you recall those, he did some um, other weird like Sony PlayStation ads, like the, this girl with like these elongated eyes and stuff like that. So he, he was a director um, back in the nineties, I guess, or maybe even early two thousands that was uh, well known for doing like really kind of 
darker, more disturbing um, film projects. He was live action with uh, this kind of right. CG augmentation. He's not an animator, I don't think. Um, in terms of nowadays, I'd say, um, you know, that's a tough one because I feel like I feel like the people that I am really inspired by are just like, you know, random Instagram artists and stuff like that. I don't know if there's any well-known artists that I that I would be able to name off the top of my head. Um, maybe, you know, it's more like uh, directors. Like I really love, uh, I'm going to butcher his name because I'm not reading it, but Panos, oh, let me look this up. He's the director of uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow and Mandy. Hmm. His name is... Panos Co- Cosmatos, I'm sure I butchered his last name, but he, I think, is basically our generation's Kubrick as far as I'm concerned. I love his work. Um, I am super inspired by people like Ron uh, Fedku from uh, Stanford. He does a lot of um, simulation research with his students. Um, he's a professor there, I believe. Um, so, yeah, it's more of like a, a mixed bag of uh, just people from different areas of the of uh, of the industry, um, who basically just do cool stuff or, uh, kind of, uh, cutting edge stuff. Um, yeah. I think, to, uh, name, name, name I'm pretty stuff. sure my friend, uh, edited Mandy actually. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I love that movie. That's amazing. Cause it was, well, I can't uh, remember. He's, uh, I can't remember where he's from the director. I think he might be, uh, actually, and I won't even guess at it, but, uh, yeah, I love his work and, uh, the editing is always on his films is always amazing. So your friend is super talented. Let me just double check that I'm not like just um, making it up. Yeah. Brett <laughs> Buckman. He went to school with me. No kidding. eh? Yeah. Well, that's a that's dream job. Gosh. <laughs> now I have to watch Mandy. I didn't even watch. Yeah. It it's amazing. I love it. It's, it's just a great film. And uh, if you like Mandy, definitely check out his earlier film beyond the black rainbow, which I just, I think is yeah. a kind of an instant classic. They're very weird films. They're not for everyone. I think a lot of people, they're almost too weird. You know, it's like when you recommend like David Lynch, like a David Lynch film to someone. And then the person right. comes back and they're like, what, what was that? Why would you recommend <laughs> that? But you're like, it's amazing. And there's so many people, you know, who do appreciate that, but you right. definitely have to t- have a certain type of personality to enjoy that kind of film. Uh, it's very weird and out there, but uh, it's right up my alley. That's cool. No, thanks for sharing your uh, inspirations. Uh, with uh, with me and my listeners, um, wanted to ask a few more things, and we've kind of went through. Sure. It's about an hour now. I try to keep those episodes short, but there's so many things I <laughs> I'm dying to pick your brain on. Um, sure. So um, the move to Tyflow is the uh, is that still what you call it? Your uh, yep. simulation yep. Uh, a set of tools is that the tool you mentioned uh, you wrote that uh, Make Make is using? Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. So it is being used kind of by other people as well. It's not just you. Yeah, right now it's uh, me and anyone else at Make that uh, needs it for a project are the only official users of it. Um, I haven't released it publicly yet, but that's definitely something that will be happening uh, hopefully soon. And uh, so you actually are uh, thinking about, uh, and when are you going to be releasing it? Is it going to be like uh, something that you own or is, uh, is it done through Make? How, do, you, do you know? Uh, no, it's uh, it's my uh, it's it's my baby. Uh, I own it. Um, I'm not sure the release date yet. I, I don't want to even try to predict it. I kind of have a date in mind, but um, with programming, especially with the types of problems that I'm trying to solve with the software, sometimes it can be really difficult to predict how long it'll take to implement a feature. Like right. you know, there like I'll have a to do list of like three things, but two of those things will be like 
month long projects. And then the third one will take me like 10 minutes. So it's, I, you know, I used to make the mistake of trying to predict when Zombox would come out and, you know, I'd work on it. I'd show off some videos of it and I'd be like, Oh yeah, next six months I'm trying to, you know, next three months. And then it's like, you know, 10 years later and it's not out. So I don't even try to estimate anymore. You don't want to, you don't want to Elon Musk it essentially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm definitely like, I'm not at the 10, it's going to be 10 more years, Mark. I'm at like the, it's going to be within a couple months. So I'll, I'll narrow it down to that, but I don't have any dates that I can, I can provide. So I'll just say, I just got exposed to it like literally a few days ago. And that's probably one, mm-hmm. one of the things that prompted me to uh, reach out to you. Um, even though, as you can probably tell, I, I've been aware of your existence for a while, but um, so to people who are not like in visual effects, cause not all my listeners are from visual effects, uh, Typhlo is is a particle simulation um, package, I guess, set of tools for that that relies on 3D Studio Max, right? And um, yeah, so uh, the idea, but yeah, for people that aren't familiar with kind of simulations or animation or any any of that, basically, if you imagine uh, maybe a film or anything that you've watched that in, has involved visual effects. Um, if you've ever seen like, you know, a wall crumbling or a, a building breaking apart or sand, you know, digital sand, uh, being pushed around or dirt or debris, that type type of thing. Uh, if you think of that, those types of effects, I mean, they involve tens of thousands of partic- little particles and particulate matter and chunks and, and stuff like that. And the thing is, they're not hand animated. They're all, they're simulated by computers that basically calculate you know, gravity and forces on these particles and uh, do all the hard work where the artists, they set up the kind of initial conditions and then push the push the pieces around, you know, or sorry, tell the computer where to push the pieces around and then the computer does the animation. So that's sort of what a piece of simulation software like this does. It basically, it's used for um, effects that involve lots of things that you wouldn't want to have to hand animate. So, but really it's not limited to debris and, uh, you know, stuff like that. It's, it's anything that, um, requires any, any, anytime there's a multiplicity of objects that you want to animate that you wouldn't want to animate by hand, that'd be too difficult or too time consuming. My software would basically be the alternative to it. So it's, it's kind of just simulating anything that is, is, uh, composed of a lot of little elements and i think the one thing that is uh, unique maybe about your uh specific involvement or entry into this world is that because of your extensive and kind of background as an animator and and creator of uh original content yourself your um as you work as you develop it correct me if i'm wrong uh your tests you kind of turn each of your tests into a little story of its own in a way. So you end up not with not only with a set of tools that you're going to be releasing to the public, but you're already been have been kind of releasing these short snippets that are probably about the exact right length for social media posts, like on Instagram and things like that. But that look amazing and that capture not only the uh, uh, incredible kind of features that you've incorporated into this uh, into the system, but also they have an artistic value of their own, right? Yeah, I've tried to. Uh, so the idea is basically, I have an Instagram page, um, and I post short clips that I've made using my software on there, and I've tried to tailor them where they're like you know ten or fifteen seconds long. 
Um, they are rendered in a pleasing kind of eye-catching way um, without becoming huge projects. Like each each clip on my Instagram page takes me uh, a relatively short amount of time to complete. No, you, the have, idea to, is, you have to say how much time. Uh, I try to, I try not to have any of them take more than like a day or a few hours. Okay. But of course that is like a a very, I'm, I'm greatly like understating how long some of them take because, um, many of the features that I'm showcasing in those clips take like weeks to develop. Right. Right. So, um, for example, the, the most recent clip I posted with a bunch of cars kind of crashing into each other and stacking on each other, like the actual setup of that scene took a couple of hours in, in an evening, but developing the features that, that showcases took like months. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to like estimate exactly how long any particular clip took because, you know, there's the programming side of things to prep the software. And then there's the artistic side of things to like get the renders ready. And it's kind of two, two phases of the project, but each of those clips definitely, um, the artistic or the sort of the, the time required to get the artistic aspect of it done. I've tried to keep fairly short. It's just the technical sort of coding aspect that takes the most amount of time. Right. But, um, yeah, they're just, I guess, uh, I try to make sure each one kind of showcases a different feature that I've been working on. And I found that, you know, with the clean rendering style that is visually engaging and um, I guess the overall kind of cool factor that they all have, they've been able to maintain a certain level of virality that I don't think I would have gotten if I kept the clips purely like technical. Right. So I make the clips kind of visually pleasing and then I make the comment section where I put all the technical info rather than having like a really technical video for people to watch. Right. So I think that's helped with people wanting to share the clips, right? Because if you don't want to read my two paragraph long-winded explanation of what's going on, you just watch the 10 second clip. You see that it kind of looks cool and you're ready to like, you know, share it with your friends or something. So it's, I think that's really helped garner traction for Thai flow that otherwise might've been difficult to come up with. Because I know there's, there's other simulation software out there um, that's under development right now, even that I've noticed where when I won't mention any names, but when they've posted like development updates, they've been very technical. Right. And I think that's limited the exposure they've been able to gain for themselves because, you know, how many people want to watch a 15 minute video showing someone setting up like a complicated fluid simulation? Like probably not many people, but if you had a 10 second clip of some fluid doing some really crazy thing with a character or something like that, well, people are ready to share that. The downside is that it's not really downside, but the one, um, the one caveat to that is that making something viral doesn't necessarily increase like your sales of your product or anything. Because for example, in my case, the people who are sharing it are like kids and people who are coming across it on Instagram, not necessarily the artists who would end up ever using it. Right. So I might have a lot of hits on a particular video, but that doesn't necessarily translate into sales. So it's something that I've had to, you know, remember that just because I'm getting like, you know, viral interest on some of my clips doesn't necessarily mean that any of those people will actually ever use it. So do you think it could even be uh, a detractor in terms of like serious people seeing how viral those videos become will take them kind of less seriously because they seem to appeal to like, I know it's stupid to think that. And, and I would consider this line of thought pretty, uh, pretty limited thinking. But uh, do you think that might be an issue to you? <clears throat> Um, you know, there's two, there's, there's, there's two sides of that coin that I have noticed. Uh, the first side is I think, uh, like when I think of all the top simulation software right now, 
uh, well, it's really Houdini, right? I mean, let's yeah. be real. There's not really any other competing simulation-only software out there. And uh, they market with a lot of cool, flashy clips. So, and um, they're doing really well. And really, all the big software companies right now, I mean, uh, I, I take it back. Houdini, is, Houdini isn't the only simulation-dedicated uh, software. There's RealFlow and Storm right. and a few others. Um, but they all kind of market with flashy clips. So I don't think... I don't think um, there's a precedent for doing uh, like purely technical stuff where like the flashiness will turn away uh, artists. But I have noticed, for example, like um, in certain discussions online, I've noticed that a lot of people uh, in these, in the context of these discussions that I've seen kind of don't take packages like cinema 4d as seriously as they might, because I've even seen people refer to it. as just like just a package to make Instagram videos. Right. Huh. Um, because you have so many artists churning right. out like these uh, very kind of copycat, little short Instagram clips with a package like cinema 4d that it gets so many of these artists doing purely Instagram work that it almost seems like, Oh, it's just an Instagram animation package. It's not a serious package. Right. And so I think there's definitely a side of the social media aspect of like certain animators who, who use it to their benefit that maybe detracts from certain software. But I mean, it's, it's hard to say really. Yeah. Um, But I think it's also like, I think there's a, it would be a weird case to make, you know, that just because people use the software for Instagram videos that the software can't be used for, you know, different kinds of work. You know, it's like people used to ask, yeah. uh, what uh, software did you render this on? And, you know, you're like, I, you know, I remember having this conversation with artists. It's like, who cares what the render, you know, who renders it, you know, or what, what software renders it as long as it comes out you know certain or you have these clients that are like oh i can tell this was made in maya because it looks a certain way which is like right not that's not really how <laughs> 3d software didn't use maya. yeah yeah exactly and, uh yeah you know and for all i know the times that i saw people making those comments it could have just been people with a chip on their shoulder you know who who prefer some other software and so they're trying to take whatever software they're not using down a notch so really i don't think my the times that i saw people commenting about cinema 4d in that example are any like sort of industry trend or anything and definitely i think when it comes to the software itself i mean all the major packages nowadays can basically do what all the other ones do you know when it comes to standard standard things obviously there are ones that excel like you know houdini well at this point it excels at almost everything (laughs) maybe there's a couple areas that you know like uh character animation or rigging that it still has work but houdini is definitely at the top of the stack right now you know maya max even like blender you know they they've all got sort of modules that could be interchanged with each other all the major renderers are compatible compatible with all the major software packages yeah, so, exactly. so it's definitely not as uh fragmented as it used to be so you seem like a fan of houdini but you wrote this uh simulation tool for 3 Studio max right yeah i mean uh yeah i 3 Studio max is the first 3d software that i got started with on a serious level um prior to just like playing around when i was a little kid with the free software the corel software i mentioned before it was the first big package that i ever used so i've i've just you know i've just grown to it's it's workflow has become like a mental language to me right so trying to use another package is like randomly trying to go out and speak spanish it just it's very (laughs) difficult i don't get it like i've tried to use maya the workflow just frustrates me uh houdini is like it's amazing and I'm not going to detract from it, but the fully node-based workflow, I can't wrap my mind around yet to the point where I would be efficient in it. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, it's kind of funny that like I'm developing software for three studio max that I'm at this point, I'm just kind of playing catch up with Houdini and it's not even, it's not even like a, 
like I'm, I'm not even really playing catch up. I mean, it's like someone uh, riding a tricycle trying to play catch up with a Ferrari, right? Like it's just not going to happen. They've got an amazing development team. They cover so many more aspects of the process that my software doesn't cover that I'm not even going to try to attempt to develop for. But the reason I'm still making my software, not just switching to Houdini, is because um, A, I really like 3 Sue Max's overall workflow, and so I don't want to change. And um, B, it's just a fun challenge, right? So um, there's definitely a a totally different mindset that goes into developing software than simply using it, right? Where even though we're maybe solving similar problems, like when I develop uh, some kind of dynamic simulation tool I might be solving a similar problem that someone who is creating all the nodes for the analogous thing and Houdini is doing. It's definitely, I don't know, it's a fun, it's a fun challenge, sort of passion project of mine. And um, even if I one day switch to Houdini for my like main visual effects work, I can't imagine I'll ever not want to support or continue developing uh, Tai flow to at least some extent. It's just too much fun. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels from, from your, uh, from your own words uh, on social media and stuff and, and the way you've kind of presented this uh, project from the get-go is that you're kind of kind of a, a little bit uh, angry at Autodesk for kind of neglecting that part in their software for 10 years, right? Um, yeah, well, um, really, TyFlow didn't come out of the void. It's actually kind of a spiritual successor to uh, existing package that was in that's currently still integrated in 3 Studio Max. So what happened was... Um, about, oh gosh, I don't even know how many years ago, I'm going to say like 15 years ago, um, there was another developer who developed a plugin called Particle Flow. Right. And it was a really interesting way. I had never really been exposed to this kind of way of thinking about um, controlling particles. And it was using nodes where instead of, um, instead of 3Studio Max is a tool where you basically have objects, you have different objects like a sphere, a box, a circle, a car, or whatever, a human, and then you apply modifiers to those objects. So you might have a box and you apply a bend modifier and you can bend your box. And you kind of, you apply modifiers to your individual uh, objects and the modifiers can change those objects. But there's, there there wasn't kind of like a linear uh, progression between modifiers in the same way that you have in uh, a node-based workflow like a, a, a node-based workflow is basically like a flow chart where you start at one you start at one point and then you follow your arrows down and you kind of get to different points based on d- like a decision tree right yeah and so um, particle flow came out with this plugin however many years ago it had this decision tree based workflow and immediately I just fell in love with it and um, it was really great it was a it just made sense to me and I loved working with it but the problem was Autodesk eventually bought Particle Flow and integrated it into their main software. So in, in some sense, that was a great success because, you know, Particle Flow, it wasn't some plugin you had to spend $1,500 on or however much it was back in the day to get the full package. Autodesk had integrated it. But um, through some reasons that I'm not fully clear on, development kind of just ceased like, you know, five or seven years ago or however many years ago, 10 years ago. Um, and so as these other packages like Houdini started to come out of the woodwork with all these new features, Particle Flow not only didn't have those new features, but a lot of the way, a lot of the ways in which had it, it had integrated its existing features were really slow and really sluggish. And it, like, it wasn't multi-threaded, for example. So now as computers have gotten multiple CPU cores over the years, and you go from one CPU core 20 years ago to having like 48 CPU cores, well, particle flow couldn't utilize more than one. So immediately 
you know, you've got these beefy workstations now, but your main simulation software, which was this particle flow plugin, couldn't utilize a huge chunk of your processing power. So already you're, you, you know, you're handicapped right out the gate. Right. So basically I became super frustrated over the years using particle flow, going from like loving it when it first came out to realizing that it was aging and getting old and eventually almost becoming obsolete um, because it was so difficult and frustrating to work with and it lacked so many features that other packages had. So I was just, I remember just like, just um, kind of talking with my coworker over Skype and being like, I should just remake this. Cause I, at that time I had make a, I had made a couple apps. I had some, a little bit of experience writing plugins for 3d studio. So I was like, you know what? I should just remake particle flow. It was kind of like a joke, <laughs> but then I like, I became so frustrated on one particular project. I went and at the end of the day or whatever, after work, I just started like developing uh, a brand new plugin project in visual studio. Like I started from scratch and just started like, with very basics, like, can I even make a node-based flow? Like, even without having any features, can I just make a graphical user interface that has nodes that can be connected together? And just starting with, like, these very small steps, just seeing, like, is this even a possibility? And then eventually, I very quickly learned that, wow, this is a possibility, and I can totally make this. And, yeah, now it's years later, and it's uh, it's basically the only uh, simulation software like we use at work, we've, we don't touch particle flow at all anymore. And, um, it's become robust enough that now it's actually like, there's a realistic, um, expectation that if I release this, people will actually find it useful. So that's, that's what now motivates me to continue working on and developing it is the idea of like people who you use and love through studio max, like myself can now actually have a competent updated, modern simulation tool set. Yeah, I mean, I can say from from myself, and I've noticed a lot of people also in social media and in the, their responses, people are dying to get their hands on it. So you're definitely doing a good job at creating a hype and building it up, and uh, and I hope uh, I hope uh, it, it does come out soon because I can't can't wait to put my hands on it. I can tell you that. <laughs> so that's pretty awesome. Um, I was also wondering, like, because you know your your uh, point of interest seems to have shifted a few times in the past few years, um, you know, from, from creating animations to uh, mobile games and then now to software development and tool, tool creation for, uh, which I think all things are kind of connected to each other in a way, of course, because you create mm -hmm. tools to create the games and then you, obviously those tools can then, or that knowledge that you gain, you can then apply to creating tools for visual effects and for, you know, yep. for your own work. Yep which makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm kind of curious, what do you think your next uh, pivot might be? Um, you know, I've been so happy with this current project, which I've been on for years now, like working, I don't know if it's full-time on it because yeah, I don't think it's been full-time, but very probably decently close to full-time on it for years and not getting bored with it, not getting tired of it, not getting too frustrated with it that I don't foresee any uh, change anytime soon. I mean, at some point I would like to go back and finish my game Zombox, which I had, you know, kind of been working on for almost a decade on and off um, just to get it out the gate. But I don't like, I, I can't foresee myself leaving programming and pivoting to something else entirely. Cause I, cause I've been doing programming for much longer than just the development of this plugin. And I think, you know, I've been doing it to some extent, at least for at least 10 years now, um, probably longer. And so I think I've just slowly come to like, accept that it's what I love doing. 
um, rather than it being like the latest thing I've pivoted to, right? Like right. Um, maybe this maybe this plugin in particular could be considered like a pivot to some extent because it's not it's it's fairly different than the projects I've been doing pr- previously. But I think I've been on this for so long and I've been so consistently excited to work on it that um, when I look towards the future, all I see is myself working on this, you know, continuing to develop it after release and just staying with this as my focus. And uh, you mentioned, obviously, storytelling being kind of uh, an inspiring or or an aspiration of yours that kind of uh, found its way to all the things that you do, including animation. And I mean, there's stories in your mobile games and, you know, you're you're presenting your uh, simulation software through these little like short stories that you're creating. Um, you mentioned you created you you you've directed a couple of shorts, but you haven't directed a feature. Is that something that you also kind of see yourself doing in, in at some point or? Um, I don't think I would ever direct a feature. I think the amount of work involved uh, is way above my personal tolerance, um, which I guess sometimes I thought about that because I'm like, well, is it really? I mean, here I've spent like two years or <laughs> exactly. more than two years working on this one plug. And why can't I just work two years on a film, right? But I don't have, you know, there's, there's people who love telling stories out there who in their mind see themselves telling these long form stories and it's just their dream to do it. And that's amazing. But for me, I've always appreciated short form more. Yeah. Um, not in terms of consumption. Like I love watching features and I probably don't watch as many short films as I should, but when it comes to the the stories that I would want to tell myself, they always take the form of shorts. I never, I've never thought of a story and been like, wow, I'd love to tell that in 90 minutes. You know, it's always like, oh, can I tell that in two minutes? So yeah, definitely just my own taste. Yeah, staying with the short form. And uh, I guess also another question I had um, was about you know working. Of course, you know you, you're doing all those uh, um, kind of side projects on your own, right? You don't have any team or anything like that 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 you uh, utilize on your side projects. Um, right. I do have a, a composer that I work with. Um, he did the music on Jungle Moose, for example. Oh, but other cool. than that, and he also did, uh, I mean, it's not out yet, but the music for Zombox. Uh, mm-hmm. When and if that game does eventually come out, is all composed by him. Um, but in terms of these other projects, no, I'm, a, I'm on my own just doing it solo. Have you ever thought of, uh, of like, branching out or, like, create, like, trying to take a more supervisorial role in some of those projects and, like, t- trying to uh, offload some of the work to other people? Um. I definitely lean towards staying solo. I think I just really enjoy uh, knowing that whatever I've created was kind of, um, I I was in control of all aspects of the project, um, especially when it comes to the software development stuff, because, you know, I'm not formally trained in software development. And even though I've had, I guess, uh, personal success in writing these plugins, the idea of trying to integrate my own coding style with someone else's just seems like a huge headache especially when I, I don't really have a inherent need for it. Like I, I've been able to handle all the aspects of the project myself so far. So I don't see myself collaborating in that sense. Um, I have enjoyed the, uh, the music collaborations with my composer for my game. So I'm sure I will continue that in the future if I release more games, but in terms of these other projects, I, I think I just prefer solo development. Um, especially as I, as I mentioned earlier, we've gotten more collaborative at work over the years. So that kind of fulfills my, my desire to work in a team and um right and then i save my kind of solo aspirations for my own projects on the side 
Yeah, it's funny. I mean, my, my approach, my the way I see it is usually I, I look at um, the idea of like spearheading like a team as a way to achieve more or to accomplish more in the same amount mm. of time. Um, I mean, I directed a feature, so that's one one instant where, you know, obviously I had a, a, a whole crew that I was uh, supervising on, on the shoot, on the day, and also in post and stuff like that. Um, but it's funny, like, thinking of you and knowing, like, the, the level of kind of the speed in which you work and, and your kind of one-man one workflow, I, I really can't find a justification for you to uh, put, you know, to kind of put together a team because I don't see that, and you know, speeding up your output or in any way. Um, yeah, I would probably even slow it down in right. some circumstances because then I would have to not only well, then all the other aspects of the teamwork-based coding would come into play where, you know, I have to coordinate, do coordination in that sense and make sure that the coding styles match and I've got to, like, you know, synchronize repositories and right. make sure everything's being pushed properly. But um, I guess I'm lucky in that sense because the projects that I've taken on for myself are projects that could reasonably be considered solo projects. It's not like I'm trying to make a, a feature on my own or something like a seemingly right. impossible task. Whereas something like a feature, like what you've directed, I mean, could a person do that solo? I mean, mm. unless you're, unless you're like filming nature or something, I mean, you need actors, right? That's exactly. why. So immediately you can't, you can't work solo and you need a crew and stuff like that. So there are definitely types of projects in this industry that you literally can't do solo. I just, I guess I've just always, not chosen them as the ones to do right um another question which is kind of taking us way back but just uh sure. because I'm, I'm curious um how do you how how do you like uh, manage your time how much time do you would you say you, you spend a week on on kind of professional work for make and and then how much of that is your own self sure self um so make is, is full time. It's uh you know, it's like a nine to five or a ten to six or whatever it happens to be on the on whatever day. Um and then um in the evenings I'll usually not work on I, I mean I guess it's tough to say, it varies every day. Cause I uh make time to spend with uh friends or family or my wife. Um just doing day to day stuff that anyone right. would do. But in the evenings I dedicate pretty much maybe f I guess it depends on the night, but like four to six hours probably working on my stuff. I usually, I'm up usually pretty late. So anywhere from like 10 to three or so I'll be working on my, my software project. So it's a definitely a full day. Like I don't, you know, I used to play video games and kind of wind down like that. Now I wind down by working on my side projects. So I don't have maybe the, like the leisure life that a lot of people would, or maybe people who aren't as motivated to do their own hobby projects would, um, so yeah, every day is definitely, uh, work for make and then work for my work for my, uh, my software project. I don't take a lot of, don't take a lot of breaks unless I'm literally traveling. <laughs> How do you stay focused for so long? I mean, that's, I guess, uh, a lot of people were probably going to ask themselves because for many people, you know, after nine hours of work for a company, they, the last thing they can do is like sit in front of a computer and keep working. I think the the difference between doing animation and doing software for me is enough that I don't feel burned out from my from my uh, work during the day. Like I think maybe if I was trying to make a short film or something on the side and I spent all day animating or doing some kind of visual effect and then I was like, oh, all night I have to do it too, I would get burned out so quickly. And that's I think that happened in the past when I would make my short films, like when I was in film school and right. I was doing make full time and then 
trying to make my films on the side and it was like, oh, I'm just animating constantly. So when the film would be over, you know, it'd take me two months to make it or whatever. It was like a huge relief and I just, I wouldn't make a film for like a year after that or something. Like it was a long period of time. Um, but the difference between software and, and graphic design for me is so different that it's like, yeah, I definitely don't get burnt out at all. Um, and I split my, I split my projects into many tiny little tasks that uh, I try to make the tasks small enough that I can like complete them in a night or in a couple hours or something. So I'm constantly switching gears. Right. Like right now my to-do list has like, you know, 10 or 15 things on it, but each of those little things might be like an hour. So if I get bored of one, I can switch to the other, finish it quickly, get like the kind of the, what's the internal chemical that like is your reward system, like the dopamine, dopamine. endorphin or something. Yeah. So I get like the little hit, like, Oh, I did it. I made it work. Great. It feels good. And then move on to the next one. And then it's like rinse and repeat. So it's like a very uh, fast paced um, system that I work through to, to make my software that keeps it interesting constantly. I'm never like, there's not too many parts of the software that I'm working on for really long periods of time, like one particular element or module. Gotcha. I always split it up into little tasks and that really helps me uh, push forward. That's a good tip. I think for anyone who's trying to like, you know, work on things uh, that, I mean, kind of create their own projects and, and go uh, and keep themselves motivated and happy. It's just like, you know, keep your tasks short and, you know, get the satisfaction on a daily basis as opposed to like, you know, being kind of bogged down by how long it's been taking, taking since the last time you've achieved something. Right. Um, yeah. Do you, yeah. It's just, it's yeah. like, Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was kind of wondering if you think that the fact that you have this day job that is completely different or completely, uh, kind of, uh, challenges you in a different way, uh, than, than your kind of hobby. Do you think that contributes to, to your, uh, rate of, of, uh, progress with your hobby? Like if, if you didn't have a day job and if you're, if you've made, you know, uh, Thai flow, your main kind of focus, do you think that will, that would make you more necessarily like more productive in that? Oh, like if I was full-time Thai flow or something, yeah. I didn't have the day job. Um, I think, I think the fact that I have to manage my time very carefully because I do, you know, eight hours or nine hours of every day is completely off off limits because I'm working my day job and then I've got, you know, whatever commitments in the evening. And so I like have very specific chunks of time I can work on tie flow within. I think having that sort of uh, forced time management helps motivate me. I think if I just had the whole day free, I might lose track a little bit, especially because um, when it comes to work deadlines and things like with client work, uh, I have no problem motivating myself to keep working on it. But because these software projects on the side, they don't have a deadline, right? right. Like if I finish this and if I release this next week or if I release this in five years, no one's going to yell at me besides <laughs> people who want to use it. Right. But there's yeah. no boss that's like, you know, pointing at his watch or anything. So, I, you know, I can imagine myself without that kind of uh, limitation, maybe losing focus a little bit or being more easily sidetracked. Um, so I think having, yeah, the structure of a job, um, outside of this project definitely helps me, um, stay on track. Gotcha. Are you, uh, do you have any siblings? I know it's completely. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I have two siblings. I have a brother and a sister. And, uh, what, are you the oldest one or the. Yes. I'm the oldest. The oldest. Three. Cool. Are, did they also end up in, uh, in a similar kind of. Um, uh, my sister isn't, she's not, uh, working in like, uh, an artistic industry. Um, but my brother is currently studying animation at, uh, Sheridan college. Oh, cool. That's um, so he was doing uh, business stuff for a few years and then decided he was always very, very artistic and sort of like me, he would work at his day job throughout the day, although his was business related. And then after hours, he would slave away on his art, art projects that he was super passionate for. And so I think it just got to a breaking point for him where he was like, you know what, I should just 
do this as my living instead of, you know, doing this business stuff and then keeping this as a hobby. So he went back to school and uh, his goal is eventually to um, create his own animated TV show. So he's got a lot of really uh, great ideas and it's just a matter of learning the steps in the industry involved to get to the, the point he wants to get to. Yeah, that's cool. And, and do you think he, he saw you as, a, as an inspiration for, for that? Or do you think kind of like it's, a, it's just a, because you guys are, uh, you know, have the same genes or something, you both gravitated <laughs> towards that? Uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure. He's always been incredibly artistic. If anything, the inspiration went the other way. I mean, he's always he's always since we were little kids, just always been creating art and drawing and sculpting and stuff like that. So I don't think it was like, oh, my my brother got a job in this industry. I should try to like he has been always incredibly self motivated. I guess maybe that's the gene that we both have, like the self motivation gene, where we uh, you know we get our head in our own projects and just don't want to stop working on it. So I think that we both have that to our benefit. That's or cool. detriment, I guess. <laughs> some some people might not want to be so focused on uh, projects outside of work, but we both enjoy it. So that's really awesome. So last, I think, last question. I swear. Um, <laughs> what What do you think about like? Are you at all interested in uh, in kind of diving into some of the new technologies that have been uh, popping up in the last few years, like virtual reality or artificial intelligence and things like that? Um. I had an, well, I've done a, a very small amount of VR related stuff. Um, very, very small amount. The technology for me is a little bit too new to get into. Like I personally get kind of motion sickness headaches when I use VR. So it's hard for me to want to develop for it when I can't even use it effectively myself. Right. So I think that the technology for that has to develop a little bit further um, before I get motivated to work on that. As for AI, um, I haven't done anything specifically in machine learning or AI. I mean, I've done AI in the sense of, uh, you know, like uh, decision kind of uh, machine um, machine state trees and stuff like that for my, uh, you know, game characters. So I've, in that sense, I've like developed AI, but I haven't used it in the sense of machine learning and, and that kind of cutting edge technology stuff with like face replacements and like what you did in your short film. Oh, you saw it. Um, I, oh yeah, of course. Uh, so I haven't done any of that, any of that myself yet. And um, who knows, I don't see it on the horizon for myself. That's kind of a slightly, like I know machine learning is being used more and more in the industry for certain things, uh, specifically lately for like uh, noise reduction and renders and stuff like that. But um, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see any current uses for it in the software that I'm developing. So, I don't know if I if 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 uh, my memory betrays me or not, but I think I remember something where some uh, particle simulation or or physics simulation software was using machine learning as a way to kind of uh, speed up their simulations. But I can't. I mean, I think it. Would I mean, there's a lot of interesting tech technology out there right now um to do that kind of thing I, I don't think i've seen that one in particular but i think i saw a different one where um i can't remember if this was machine learning or not i could be wrong but it was it was like simulating it was taking visual simulations and using ai to generate the audio for them so like a, oh. a can crumpling or like a symbol being hit there was some kind of machine learning happening to to generate the audio i think or there was other, there's been other things like um uh, using AI to do um, paint outs and stuff like that, right? right. Where it's yeah. basically filling in uh, data where there isn't any or or upscaling um, resolutions of videos and stuff like that. 
um, SIGGRAPH every year when they release all their papers. There's always yeah, there's cool always stuff. But, but some of that technology is so fresh and cutting edge that it's like the technology is there and it's cool, but it's not mature enough to really integrate into a workflow. Like you might see some video that uses machine learning and it's, you know, it's like, like I saw one recently where um, they, they took footage of like some cars driving and they use machine learning to turn every frame into like a painted image. So the, the end result looked like a moving painting sort of. Mm. And it's like, wow, that's really cool. It's graphic design related. Like when is that filter going to be in after effects? But what you don't see is like the algorithm took like, 300 hours to run or something right. like that. Or like uh, there was some crazy other stipulation where it's like, okay, the technology it's developing, it's, it's getting cool, but it's not quite at the point where it's sort of consumer friendly yet. And so since I'm developing more of a consumer, consumer friendly solution, I guess I haven't seen anything yet that is uh, really that applicable. Right. But I think it's probably a matter of time before things are going to start to become more kind of open and accessible in a way or like I think so like give it like you know three to five years and it'll be much more the norm to be doing that especially now with um uh like the deep fakes and stuff like that where there's now like end user software that you can use that anyone can install on their laptop or whatever to replace faces on videos and stuff like that so really um, I didn't I didn't hear I mean I know they released something called the fake face app or something like that that i face app and yeah there's uh yeah and there's also um there's google deep dream i think is what it's called uh if you've heard of that one where it will um take an image and then uh recreate it with uh the ai that has been trained on specific images of certain things so you might take like a an image of like a, a cityscape and the ai will recreate it after it's been trained on like pictures of dogs. Oh yeah. So all the shapes and things will be like weird morphed dog kind of, you know, shapes and stuff like that. So it's really, it's really weird, but this, you know, that's, that's again, it's, they've released that publicly and there's lots of people using it. So there are some that are out there already. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure in a few years, uh, following your work, uh, it's gonna, I'm definitely going to see that thing bleeds into it. I'm assuming. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. I'm open to it. Great. So I think usually what I do when, when we reach the end of the podcast is I ask, you know, if you have any tips or anything like that for people who are, or for yourself, like in the past or anything like that, you kind of covered that already. In the, <laughs> I think I already like yeah. ranted on my past self before. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's good. So I guess the last thing is uh, kind of, it's uh, another opportunity to remind people uh, where to find you online and, and, you know, if they want to catch up on your, on your work, what would you uh, recommend? Sure. Um, yeah, right now, the main place that I post my work is uh, just my Instagram page where I post these clips that I've been making with this TieFlow software. So the uh, the handle is uh, underscore TieFlow underscore. Um, I have a personal website, but I don't update it very often. So it's just uh, TysonIvel.com. Uh, but I'm mainly just on Instagram these days. And somewhere out there is also your old tysonibel.com oh gosh i hope not it is actually i've i've looked it up <laughs> is it on like the Wayback machine or something no no it's, I mean, it's actually archived? it actually comes up pretty quickly when you when you uh search you i mean if, if you click on some on a certain old project it'll take you to the older website which i i think you shouldn't do anything about it honestly i think you should just oh you know what i think it. yeah because i didn't uh i didn't take down the old website i just changed the base uh, forwarding URL on like the main tysonable.com URL to go to the new one, right? So yeah. all the old files and directories still exist. So if, yeah, they're they're out there, but I wouldn't recommend anyone looks. <laughs> <laughs> all 
I would uh, counter that, actually. I would, uh, I would say <laughs> it's definitely, I mean, I know you don't like it, and there's, uh, you know, I, I, can see, I can see your point in some, somewhere there, but there's a lot of impressive work there that I just, uh, I hope that still is accessible and people can still see what, uh, what you've been up to in your early days, because it's, it's just as impressive, in my opinion, as the new stuff. Uh, well, I think, I mean, you're an artist, so you can, uh, I'm sure uh, you understand this feeling. But, you know, when you look back at your old work, when it's your work, it's kind of cringeworthy, right? But right. when you look at someone else's old work, it's like, oh, it's like a, a cool archive of their growth, right? Exactly. So it's really difficult for me to look at my own work like that. But I guess I can sort of empathize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I still hate all my old work. <laughs> I, I, I love it. And I think, uh, I mean, if, if I had uh, anything to say about it, I would say... I would love to see like workflow videos of how you do things because you've always been a mystery just in terms of like the output <laughs> and uh, yeah, anything to shed more light on it and not just be the person who kind of drops in and, you know, throws his work for everyone to like kind of drool over and, and to scratch their heads and to kind of uh, uh, ask themselves uh, if they have any chance in this world, you know, themselves because... That, that would be great to kind of see see the work the, the process behind it because I'm sure it's very unique and, uh, and, and inspiring so well once the uh, once I release my software I do plan on releasing sort of workflow tutorial videos so great. maybe that will um, maybe that will help people who are interested in using it that would be awesome alright uh, Tyson Ibel thank you so much for your time and uh, thanks for having me on awesome this was episode 15 with Tyson Ibel. If you want to follow Tyson's work, go to tysonibel.com or follow him on Instagram, Tyflow. And if you want to listen to more episodes, go to the postpostpodcast.com. Uh, don't forget to like or leave your comments, share it if you feel like it. Hope to see you next time. We're going to be talking to Sasha Vinogradova, an amazing concept designer uh, and art director working at The Mill. See you then. Bye.